When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Grant. And if you're joining us for the very first time, we are very glad that you are here to join us on our journey of discovering good music. You picked quite an episode to start your journey off with us, and we'll get a little bit to that later. Um, If you like what you hear, uh, be sure to hit subscribe, like, leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Um, You can always unsubscribe later. And you'll get access to or you'll get notifications for all the new content that we are going to come out with every single week for you guys. If you want to get in on the conversation, we have an Instagram and a Facebook page at Good Music Podcast. Suggest to us who you want us to talk about. And a lot of people don't know, but you can also suggest a volume two. If you've already done an artist and you want to have a little bit of a deeper dive, then you can suggest that as well. And if you really want to get the exclusive access, the fancy stuff for the real good music fans. Down in the description, there's a link to a Patreon page that is for us for the equivalent of just a couple dollars. Well, I guess it's, it is a couple dollars, not the equivalent of a couple dollars a month. <laughs> you get to have, you get to have early access to the episodes every week. And you also get exclusive access to our after hours segment. We like to call it our bad music podcast where We have no filter, and we just talk about the worst songs of the band every week, and it's really, really fun. Um, So definitely want to check that out if you love good music. But if all you're doing is coming and listening every week, we appreciate that so much. It's great to see the numbers slowly go up, and they're they're reaching an exponential curve. So um, it's very encouraging that you guys tune in every week. And it has been a while. It has been an entire week since we've been with you guys we talked about simon and garfunkel last week and at the end of the episode i was thinking hmm i should listen to some more because that's what you do when you discover good music right so i said i was going to listen to bookends because i really liked uh, both the songs we had on that episode and i have to say that those songs were not at all representative of bookends no <laughs> not, not at all i mean it opened with with bookends theme and so i'm like ooh, is this gonna be like a half concept record i mean it, it, was- it was originally intended to but yeah and then it wasn't and then the it, it things were so weird and then by the time it got to voices of old people uh-huh. i was just like what is happening i mean it made sense when it got to old friends like i i get it right uh but 
you had made the suggestion, or I guess you had made the assertion that Bridge Over Troubled Water is kind of like their greatest, you know, uh, work. Mm-hmm. And so I said, you know, I'll, I said to myself, I might as well listen to that before I completely write off Simon and Garfunkel. And oh my gosh, that one was so much better. Hmm, interesting. Like, Bridge Over Troubled. I really liked that. It was a good, it was a good listening experience. I feel like the songs that we had on our list were closer to the rest of the songs on Bridge Over Troubled Water. I guess it helped that there were three of them instead of two. Yeah. But whatever. So that was pretty interesting. Well, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I Yeah, I did. And, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? (laughs) But not when when you go and see ZZ Top. Yeah. So so those of you guys that follow us on Instagram saw that on uh, Friday night I was posting – um, some videos from seeing ZZ Top. So that, those of you that are uh, haven't followed us the last couple of episodes, the original plan was I was going to Vegas to see Judas Priest. And then, of course, the, the incident with Richie Faulkner and his heart explosion happened. And yeah. the tour got postponed. We still don't... Um, we still haven't heard anything about when that all is going to get uh, restarted. But... Uh, my dad and I decided to go see ZZ Top instead, and boy, was that an incredible decision. Um, I mean, obviously, it's sad that the crazy thing about that show was that nothing was uh, down-tuned. They played everything in the original key. Oh, wow. He still sounded exactly the same. Like, obviously, you know, he never really pitched stuff too high to begin with. Mm -hmm. But, like, Legs, for example, he sings fairly high on that song, probably the highest that he goes. And he still sounded exactly like the recording. And that's pretty good. It was pretty awesome how old he is yeah they're they're in their 70s and of course just frank beard was was really uh holding down everything in the back sounded incredible some of the fills he did i was just like oh that's that's nice and um and then they had uh, their their guitar tech that has become their their new bass player but he even made a joke saying like i promise you that his beard is real cuz he had like a big old beard like Billy did. <laughs> and so, of course, you're going to think that the guy that just joined in has a fake beard, but he was like, I promise you, that beard is real. It's nice that it's the tech, so it kind of keeps it in the in the family. In the yeah, in the family, I guess. The coolest part of the show, though, is when they did Tush, is the last song of the show, which has always traditionally been Dusty's song. Mm-hmm. And they said that um, they had a recording of Dusty's last ever performance. And they got the vocal take from that song being played live. And they just provided the backing track to his sung vocal. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And in the middle of the song, uh, a stagehand came out and put a cigarette in Billy Gibbons' mouth and lit it for him <laughs> while he was playing the guitar solo. <laughs> that is, that's very uh, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> that's like uh, Steve Avery Vaughn singing while his 
guitar string broke, so the tech comes out and gives him a new one, and he doesn't skip a beat. Yeah, it's the same kind of energy from like those those Texas. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a really cool show. I mean, they sounded great, they played great, and it was it was a worthwhile experience getting to see them. More so than I thought it would be. Good, good. So it was that was at the the at the Venetian in Vegas. Ooh. It was a great time. Vegas just overall was a really fun experience. Wish I could have seen Judas Priest while I was there, but man, ZZ Top more than exceeded my expectations. But it is now time to talk about why we are here for this episode, which is a continuation of our little sub-series on the history of music, which we do the last episode of every month. And we are going to be returning to our man Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Those of you that caught our last music history episode knows that this is the uh, second part of a two-parter talking about Mozart opera. And so the last episode was all about the opera seria or the serious opera. We talked about uh, Idomeneo and it's time to talk about a different category of opera, but something that I would say not only equaled opera seria, but by the end of the 1700s had transcended past opera seria. And that is something called opera buffa. Opera buffa. Uh-huh. Or, as we would call it, comedy opera. Ah, so... So give us a refresher. Is this comedy opera as in, like, Friends or How I Met Your Mother <laughs> with music? Um, I mean, honestly, probably not too far off now. Really? Opera buffa is, is a bit of an umbrella term. Opera buffa is just considered not opera seria. But there is, in a large majority of the plays, a, a comedic aspect to um, the operas of this type. Nice. But they it's don't got, have got that mass appeal. They don't have to be like side-splittingly funny. They just have to not be opera seria. So that means that we're not going to be talking about kings and gods and mythical heroes of old like the the biggest i would say characteristic of opera buffa is the fact that the characters and the scenarios portray normal everyday life oh so your your protagonists are going to be middle class working fellows and not, you know, pe- people that the common person can relate to and scenarios that the common person can relate to. Which is the whole, the whole classical music mantra. Yeah. The, it's the cl- they put the class in classic. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just like most musical uh, innovations of the Baroque and the classical period I've found, Opera Buffa started off as a small little um, side piece to main opera, opera seria. So, like, during between acts, they would do these, like, little, like, intermission 
uh, comedy interludes. Oh, and that's kind of cool. Yeah, and they ended up starting to become quite popular, and so people were like, "Hey, let's let's just make an entire opera out of this." And they got really big in Italy first. And then eventually, by the 1800s, they had kind of spread over and really had replaced opera seria as far as popularity and critical acclaim. I feel like that's the uh, that's the whole modus operandi. Is it came big in Italy first, yeah, and then everywhere else. Well, I mean, when you have the Enlightenment and the rise of the middle class and the 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 way on aristocracy and nobility um, of course people are going to want to see uh, opera and art that reflects more their life rather than the lives of the people that rule over them right just makes sense yeah that's how pop music is now mm-hmm. I mean we talked about that with Casey Musgraves look at that tying everything together yeah um, it's it's all about trying to um, appeal to as many people as possible. But mm-hmm. because of the fact that there were so many restrictions on what opera seria could be about and how it could be performed, mm-hmm. that opera buffa was also a place for composers to experiment and to do crazy things. Mm-hmm. Because um, there was also a formula to the way that um, opera series were were put together musically. Like it was usually always recitative aria, recitative art. Like it was kind of like back forth, back and forth. And Mozart was able to have some leeway. Like we talked about that in 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 our Domineo episode about mm-hmm. how he sounds things. But there was really only so much he could do with opera right. buffa. It was just like, there's no rules. I can make this however I want. Mm-hmm. Because there's not as much tradition saying it has to be this way because we've done it this way for this many hundreds of years. Right, right, right. That's good. Lends to some experimentation. Yeah. So the uh, the opera that we're going to talk about in this episode is one called The Marriage of Figaro. It's the Looney Tunes opera. Um, no, maybe it's not. not. No, it's not. You're really close, though. Oh, the one from Looney Tunes is the Barber of Seville. Oh, which Marriage of Figaro is the sequel to the Barber of Seville. Oh, so I really was close. You were close. (laughs) Yeah, like, yeah, I'm assuming, like, if you're me and you are thinking the same thing of like the scene with Bugs Bunny doing the shaving scene and bugs bunny and the and the glove that's keeping the note there and then it cracks the the auditorium yeah 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 that's barbara of seville gotcha gotcha so marriage of figaro is the sequel it's got most of the same characters um so these started off as stage plays first oh and then they were um adapted for opera so was this performed as a play originally? Like yes. Is like people saw this performed as a play before it was a musical. Uh-huh. That's cool. Yeah. And we're so not talking about the play was, now. You know? So it was it was already um a good uh, story. something that people were familiar with. But oh. 
Um, the Marriage of Figaro was a very controversial play and something that had been banned in lots of different countries because of the fact that it was a very political oh, and very much painted the nobility in a bad light and the, and the, and their aristocracy did not appreciate that. Oh, that's kind of funny. Actually. Because the, <laughs> our main characters being Figaro and Susanna are normal working class people and they are outsmarting the evil bumbling uh, noblemen and women. And that would be where the comedy comes from. Yes. Oh, this is great. So when Mozart decided he was going to do the marriage of Figaro, he had to do a pretty complex political dance in order to get it approved. Mm. Because he was originally told that you're not allowed to play this this piece. It's too controversial. It's going to start an uproar. The way... Mm -hmm. Napoleon had had viewed this play and called it the action. Whoa. So, I mean, if Napoleon's saying that, then, you know, there's got to be some merit behind it. So Mozart promised them that he was going to take out all of the offensive political bits. But um, what he, he did. What he, well, he did. But... Oh. He reinserted it into the music itself. He took it out of the text and put it into the music. Oh, so it's all it's all visual comedy. Um, well, at the, obviously there are words, and the the situations are in of themselves very comical. But a lot of the heavy handed spell it out like political stuff is rooted in the music rather than the words music you meaning like lyrics no the way as in the music oh, the it's itself displayed. the instrumentation so because of the fact that opera seria was so much the the realm of the wealthy and the important it was always associated as a genre that was not meant to be enjoyed and appreciated by the middle class. And so what he did was that he used opera seria musical ideas anytime that he was uh, portraying bad guys. Okay. <laughs> okay. So whenever um, one of the... Uh, one of the noblemen was on stage and doing one of his bits, he used operaria-type musical um, movements to portray that this person is outdated, he is pretentious, he is someone that does not understand the world of the common man. He's out of touch with reality. He's last year. And so I guess it, when when you have an audience that's full of middle-class people they would they would get the joke immediately yes because again that was that was what they knew and so whenever um uh emperor joseph heard uh the opera he was actually quite furious because he understood as well he was just <laughs> like gosh dang it he technically did what i told him to but then put it back in to the music 
And so unfortunately, Marriage of Figaro was not a huge success because of how controversial it still was. Oh, wow. But as time has gone on, Marriage of Figaro has come to be regarded as Mozart's crowning achievement. His His greatest work. Oh, okay. Well, he did just do the music, I guess. Yeah, um, the composer, Johannes Brahms, which is, he's someone that's considered one of the greatest of all time, said that he still does not understand how Mozart could have written something as brilliant and as beautiful as The Marriage of Figaro. That, That sounds like something that a music historian would say to try to get you to listen to Marriage of Figaro because they think it's the best thing that has ever been written, which may or may not be what's happening right now. But, you know, (laughs) it's just like when it's weird to say that because we live in a world of, I mean, we live in a world, we live in a, the modern world of, you know, these overproduced, digitally produced, um, you know, five or six instruments at most kind of world and then here is this giant you know four hour long uh, giant orchestral piece in another language right yeah i don't know it must it must be pretty hard i imagine the amount of research that you had to do which given the fact that we're recording later than we usually do oh yeah the amount of research you had to do is pretty pretty big yes and i i imagine a lot of that also had to do with the story which yes, man, this is a loaded story. I don't think I'm still going to be able to fully explain correctly everything that happens in this story. It's a <laughs> it's a three hour opera whenever it's performed. Oh my! And there's four acts, not three. Ugh. Ugh, it is, man. but let me tell you what: I have not enjoyed an opera more than this one. This is one where the music so easily jumps out to you it's it's quite amazing and not only that but it's it it is a fun gripping story to where i'm watching it i'm just like man i'm liking this not to say that i didn't like the other ones before but it also it had this antiquated feel to it marriage of figaro still like you can see a lot of like modern comedy in it. Again, it's, well, it's not going to be in the sense of gags or puns or anything like that, or like body humor. But like, it's just it's it's very clever. It's incredibly sophisticated in how it weaves all these situations together. Well, you know, what's funny is funny. Yeah, it's it's great situational comedy. Right. Um, this was the first of three operas that Mozart wrote with a guy named Lorenzo da Ponte. And the other two that he did are considered the two other most popular Mozart operas being Don Giovanni and The Magic Flute. With or no, no, uh, and Cosi Von Tutti. When you say um, wrote with. So he was the librettist. Ah, okay. Gotcha. The uh, the, the lyric guy. Yes. Um, now, this was a bit more of a collaborative effort 
so than a composer librettist relationship normally is. Okay. Um, because Mozart had a lot of input the story would go because he had these musical ideas that he needed to make work. Mm-hmm. Um, if did you ever watch the movie Amadeus? No. <laughs> because I'm sorry. I that's okay, that. but I really strongly suggest you do because the marriage of Figaro is one of the central events in that movie. It's something okay. that for the first half of the movie, he's always referring to as this mm-hmm. secret project that nobody's allowed to know about and mm-hmm. that he's spending all of his time constructing. And um, one of the big climaxes of the movie about probably two thirds in is when he debuts the marriage of Figaro. And it's kind of like for the first two thirds of the movie, that's what it builds to is, is that opera. Uh, then it's like uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, where they just do the whole thing for the last part of the movie. Uh, Live Aid. Not necessarily. You, <laughs> you get to see bits and pieces of it. Ah, that's good. But I mean, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty astounding opera. It's again, it they're they're focusing so much on it because it is considered his great work. And it's very easy to see why. And again, he was 32 when he wrote this, and he only wrote it in six weeks. Wow. He wrote a. He, must have, he had to have been on some kind of like Zen regimen. Well, again, the thing about Mozart also is that he made no revisions, he only made final copies. Like, he didn't have edited manuscripts where where he writes out a score and then crosses out notes and puts different ones to make things sound better that is scary he already had everything completely finished in his head before he even wrote down a single note oh okay so he had been he had been composing in his mind yes oh okay that makes sense now that's still like three hours of music composed in your head now Here's the thing, though. I am still pretty sure, though, that he didn't start composing it in his head until that beginning of that six weeks. Oh. Even. So the. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Someone was just like, even the great composer to compose something of this magnitude would probably have taken several years. And that he, it took, it was took him faster to compose it than it would have taken to copy it for all the different uh, members of the orchestra. (laughs) Wow. And that he created something that has stood the test of time and become the greatest composer's greatest work. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) bravo, sir. Yeah, yeah, really. Oh, it's just, man. That is, that is really a, that is really a feat to yes. like compose something in six weeks because I mean it's like it's hard to write a singular good song in a couple weeks mm-hmm. you know, because you want to change this note here or that or change this lyric here or whatever, but it's with no revisions six weeks for three hours of music yeah. 
that, that that's a beast of a man, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's truly remarkable. And um, this was the this was an opera that really helped push opera buffa into taking over opera seria because this came out in 1786, and I would say by the 1790s, um, buffa had completely supplanted seria as the main form of opera. Oh man! So you're telling me this was like never mind? Kind of, yeah. Wow. Again, even though it wasn't initially received well, as far as by the by the noblemen, it it caught on very quickly afterward. And, um, uh, oh, what was his name again? Uh, Lorenzo de Ponte, the librettist. He actually traveled to America and um, was able to have the first official opera played in America be the Marriage of Figaro. And was able to get Mozart's legacy and name popular in America. I think it's very that's very fitting of early America to make fun of the of the nobility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems right. That's pretty funny, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the story. Yes, because this is this is this is gonna this is gonna be quite convoluted, but okay. So, like I said earlier, we have our two main characters, which is Figaro and his fiancée, Susanna. Yes. And the whole point of the opera is they're trying to get married. And another thing about opera buffa, the normal um, convention is that everything in the opera takes place over a 24-hour period. Okay. So, it's like everything is very contained, very action, 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 instead of any kind of passage of time. Okay. So, like, almost everything that you see in an opera buffa is almost like happening in real time. There's no, there's no, like, the next day, or you know, and a couple weeks later, it's all happening now. Mm-hmm. So, they're trying to get married. They both work at uh, the Count's residence, Count Almaviva, mm-hmm. who was the m- sort of main character of the Barber of Seville. The whole point of the Barber of Seville was that Figaro was trying to help the Count woo the affections of the Countess. And oh. so it was, a, it was a romance story to bring in the Count and the Countess together. Now, in this, they're married, and it's Figaro's turn to have his relationship. And the Count, though, is quite the dirty, slimy man. He has developed feelings for Susanna. And he wants to issue prima nocta. Which, which if you don't know what that is, that means that the nobility gets to deflower the bride on her wedding night before the husband does. Now, he, at the end of Barber of Seville, had put a ban on that behavior in his estate. But now he's regretting that decision and is wanting to have Susanna and is trying to figure out a sneaky way to do it without having to publicly break his promise. And so he decides to put Figaro and Susanna's room right next to his. And okay. he and he has given Figaro a new promotion, 
as his ambassador because previously he's just been his valet. Mm -hmm. And now he's saying, oh, you're going to go on all these important errands for me. You'll, you'll go to London for me. You'll, you know, but really what he's doing is he's creating scenarios to get him out of the house so he can go visit Susanna whenever he wants. I mean, I'll give it to, I'll give this to him. It is kind of smart. Although Susanna picks up on it immediately. Okay, never mind. And, but Figaro is the one that's just like, oh, what's the problem? Isn't it so convenient that our room is right next to counts? I can, I'll be able to help him with anything in an instant. She's just like, yeah, well, of course it seems convenient. Because also, you'll while you're gone, he can come over here whenever he wants. And he's like, and Figaro's like, what? Oh my goodness. So um, that's how the that's how everything starts. Okay. Is um, is them having this conversation, and eventually Figaro is picking up what Susanna's laying down, and he's just like, "Okay, Count, you want to play? Let's play. You try and take my woman, I'll make you sorry that you ever did." Ooh. Because Figaro is a really smart, conniving guy. He knows how to play games with people. And how to get the upper hand without direct confrontation. And Susanna is also equally gifted. She is sharp-tongued, sharp-witted, um, able to think faster than everyone else around her. She's the only one that can reach a conclusion like that before Figaro does. So we also have these two side villains. Um Bartolo, who is a um, a cohort of the Count, who is actually the Count's nemesis in the Barber of Seville, and Marcellina, who is an old maid that is considerably older than Figaro, yet wants Figaro as a husband. And oh. he despises Susanna. And so they have their own little scheme to break up the wedding. Because... The Count has agreed to put up the bride price for uh, Figaro and Susanna. So their plan is if they can get them to fall out of the Count's good graces, then he won't pay for the dowry, the marriage can't happen, and Marcellina can come in and swoop away Figaro because okay. Figaro owes them money from the Barber of Seville. Okay. And so she's like, this is the way I'm going to cash in my debt is saying you have to marry me. There's a lot of moving pieces. Yep. And that's, even out of those aren't life. the only moving pieces. Okay. We also have this 13-year-old boy named Kirabino. And he just cannot keep himself from wandering into women's bedrooms. <laughs> And he comes into Susanna's room and is pining about how much he loves girls and that he dreams about love every night and daydreams about it every day. And it's like, oh, I, because Susanna is the personal um, handmaiden to the Countess. And so he's saying that, I wish I was in your position. You get to dress and undress the Countess every day. Man, you're so lucky. And by the way, um, Kirabino is 
been portrayed by a uh, female actress because they wanted to emphasize that a 13-year-old boy is going to have a high voice. Um, sometimes they would use one of the uh, constrata, which if we, if you remember that, those are the castrated men that retained their soprano voices. Mm-hmm. But obviously that won't happen in modern day um, recreations. And so usually the role of Kirabino is played by a woman. Um, so Kirabino is, is in Susanna's bedroom when all of a sudden the count busts in. And Kirabino has to hide. And he overhears the count proposition Susanna to meet him in the garden that night and that he would pay her like a prostitute. Oh, my. Of course, the count finds out that Kirabino is in the room and has heard everything, something that is highly scandalous and something that will deeply incriminate him. Mm-hmm. And so he's furious, but he's also figuring out, I've got to figure out a way to keep this quiet. So he says that he is going to enlist Kirabino into the military as one of his officers. And that's going to be a way to get him out as well as to punish him. And so, okay. of course, Kirabino is quite upset by this. And Figaro comes back in, learns of the situation, and realizes that he now has leverage with Kirabino, saying that if you help me outsmart the Count, I can figure out a way for you to not have to go into service. Oh. So he gets an out. Meanwhile, Susanna goes and tells the Countess what has just happened and gets an ally for her side as well. The Countess, of course, is quite broken up and sad, but she's just like, that SOB is going to pay for trying to cheat on me. Okay. So their plan is that they're going to dress Kirabino as Susanna and have him impersonate her. They go to meet the Count. And that when the Count realizes what's happened, they'll have caught him red-handed trying to be unfaithful. Oh... Oh, that's pretty funny. So, while they are in the middle of dressing Kirabino up as Susanna, guess who comes into the room but the Count? Right. So they stuff Kirabino in the closet, and Susanna also runs off to her room. The Count is talking to the Countess when he all of a sudden hears a crash inside the closet. He's like, Who's in there? And the Countess says, uh, it's Susanna. And he says, why is she in there? And so he now starts to demand that Susanna come out of the closet. Oh, well. Um, (laughs) But of course, Kirabino's not going to come out. Mm -hmm. Because he's half-dressed as a woman in the Countess's bedroom. That's like, that's an almost... Um, capital crime. Mm-hmm. And so that's when the Countess starts to panic and says it's actually not Susanna in there. It's uh, Kirabino. And the Count is furious. He leaves the room to go find a crowbar and a sword so he can break open the door and slay him. And the Countess goes with him 
Meanwhile, Susanna comes back in, realizes what's going on, but doesn't know that the Countess has already fessed up to Kirabino being the one in the closet and says, here, Kirabino, you jump out the window and I'll go into the closet. Okay. So Kirabino <laughs> jumps out the window. She goes in the closet. The Countess and Countess come back in, open the door, and are just both dumbstruck to find that Susanna's the one that's in the closet. And so the Countess is like, what the, what the heck is happening? And then Figaro comes in, and they start to ask him, do you know anything about this? Because also at the beginning, whenever she announced that Kirbino was in the closet, she said that Figaro was behind it. And they were like, Figaro, why did you have Kirabino hide in the closet? But it's also not Kirabino. Are you behind all this? And he was like, no, that's not me. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was just minding my own business. I have nothing to do with this. Then the gardener comes into the room and says, hey, I saw someone jump out your window and they landed on all of my flowers. And the count's like, well, why, who jumped out of your window? And he's like, I'm not sure, but he seemed like a small boy. And the count is like, a small boy? And Figaro's just like, actually, it was me. I jumped out the window. Ha, ha, ha. So funny. I sprained my ankle. Ouch. Mm -hmm. And the gardener is just like, but you're way bigger than the person that jumped out the window. And he's just like, well, everyone looks small when they first jump out of something. Like saying that you're squatted down. And it turns into this whole situation of every time that Figaro thinks that he's solved something, something else comes up. Like the fact that um, the, the gardener's just like, oh, by the way, then, if you were the one that jumped out the window, you this fell out of your pocket. And it's Kirabino's commission to the military. Oh. And so now he's got to think, well, crap, how do I explain that I have his summons? And so this goes, this scene goes on and on. This is the big finale of Act Two. The bedroom constantly going back and forth between each other. And um, it ends up with uh, Marcellina and Bartolo and the Count um, conspiring against Figaro because Count doesn't have proof that Figaro's behind all this, but he's very suspicious of him. And Marcellina and Bartolo are trying to convince the Count to call off the marriage because obviously Figaro is up good. He's scheming against you. Okay. So that's just the first two acts. So you can, you can see how, how complicated all of this is. This, yeah, the, uh, I'm going to get a whiteboard. There's yeah. way more twists and turns, and I'll try not to go into it too much because it's – it's you almost just have to see it to understand it. Huh. But the way things end is that the big development in Act 3 is um, Figaro drops a bombshell by stating that Marcellina and Bartolo are actually his parents, that they had had a – uh, a tryst long ago and had an illegitimate son that they had lost and that Figaro was that person 
And so now he's resolved the plot line of Marcelina trying to marry him by saying that actually you're my mom. Oh, wow. Amusement <laughs> on their faces is a great thing to witness. Um, as well as the Countess and Susanna are able to quickly put together another plan to catch the Count in his infidelity. Where this time, instead of dressing up Kiribino, they decide to dress as each other. Susanna dresses as the Countess, and um, the Countess dresses as Susanna. And so Act 4 all takes place in the garden, where um, the Countess, dressed as Susanna, meets with the Count, and the Count um, gets it down and dirty with her. But he's actually has made love to his wife instead of Susanna. And as a parting token, he gives her a ring, which of course is going to be the great thing that reveals him in the end. Mm-hmm. And um, and so the the big finale is um, the countess saying, and and here's the ring that you gave me, and he has this this repentful, sorrowing um, speech that he gives, and he is forgiven, and the marriage happens, and everyone lives happily ever after. Okay. Not a whole lot of that happened to do with Figaro trying to get married, it seems like. Well, the whole thing being, the subplot being that oh. uh, that the yeah. marriage is trying to happen, and every time that they're trying to move forward with the marriage, something happens to stall it. Like when um, that whole bedroom scene where... Um, he keeps getting deeper and deeper into the Kirabino incident. The original reason he comes in is because he's saying, hey, the wedding party's here. Come on, Count. I need you to officially fulfill your promise to pay the dowry so we can get this marriage going. And the Count is just like, hold on. There's something going on that is really disturbing to me, and I need to figure out what's going on. Okay, I got you. So... And, of course, the whole tipping point being, are they going to do something that's going to forever have the Count disown them and therefore they can't get married? Right. So they have they had to find a way to prevent the Count from ever wanting to sleep with Susanna while at the same time not making it super apparent that they're actively going against because then he'll just uh, kick them out or even kill them. So it was, it's a delicate balance. They they dance a a sophisticated dance. There's a lot of things <laughs> happening. Yeah. So oh, wow, that's like V, but three hours instead of five hours. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's quite complicated, but man, it's so well put together. Hmm. It sounds like it. So, yeah, I had to really pay attention when everything... Cause, and it moves so fast. For three hours, a lot of stuff happens. 
to where if you're not paying attention, you'll miss one key line that changes the entire direction of the plot. And then like 15 seconds later, another line will completely change the direction of the plot yet again. I mean, I don't want to be asleep for three hours. Yeah. I want to be actively engaged. So that's good. Well, I think at that point, this is this will be a good place to uh, take a break. And when we come, we're going to talk about the six songs from The Marriage of Figaro that we have selected for this episode. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We've been talking about The Marriage of Figaro. Le Nozze di Figaro, or whatever it is in in Italian, um, <laughs> on, on Spotify. Now it's time to get to the six song segment. We have a six songs segment, our second segment, every single episode. We like to pick six songs that are representative of what we're talking about that episode, whether it's an artist or a particular time period, in the case of our music history spinoff series. And these six songs are, of course, six songs from the marriage of figaro right that will be different parts of the plot i can see they're in order of where they come in the show and if you want to listen to these which i highly recommend that you do because we're going to be talking about these six songs specifically for the next at least 40 50 minutes right down in the description there's a link to a spotify playlist that has not only these songs but all of the songs from every single other episode past present and future so if you see any other songs on that list that you're kind of interested in, we have an episode talking about that specific song. So you'll definitely want to check that out. And without any further ado, I don't think there's anywhere else better to start than the beginning. This must be the overture. Yes, it is. And this is one of the most famous overtures ever yes. written. It's I'm assuming that you I'm assuming that you recognized it whenever it I mean, started. It it who who couldn't recognize the soundtrack to every laptop, phone, car commercial in existence? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm... So I guess this was this was another um, Mozart wrote the overture the night before. Yes, he did. Wow, that's awesome. Um, I just saw something like literally yesterday or two days ago. It was like a it was like a preview for a movie, or something, and they were playing this overture underneath it, and I was just like, oh, "Look at that!" Yep. Well, it's just it's got it's got that sophisticated air to it, but at the same time, it's kind of fun and a lot of trills and just all mm-hmm. over the place. There's a lot of themes. It's exciting. And the fact that it like jumps between the five and the one over and over again, that is that is grand. That is the universal theme opening, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, every major, you know, movie uh, theme will open with like a five and a one or something like that because it just sounds it sounds very big. Yeah, that's what you do. And so I guess if you're wanting to do a car commercial and you want people to think that your car is epic you do this <laughs> yeah this this um this overture has become almost synonymous with like epic but like the epic of like 
you know, this is going to be a fun adventure. Right. Right. It, and it has such it a is. great shift of dynamic, like how it starts off quiet and then it just, I mean, it hits you in the face any warning. Yep. Yep. And, and the little, the little oboes and flutes, and then all of a sudden it's just all the string section, and it does that a whole lot throughout the, throughout the overture. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that same theme over again. Um, like, not in the sense of an overture that we're used to now of being every single theme. Kind of like what it was last week, I guess. If I'm incorrect. You, can me. you mean last uh, music history? Yes, last, last music history. How the overture isn't necessarily all of the important themes. It's just... Um, I would actually cool. say it's more so in this case. Oh. I heard I noticed it a lot more than I did in a Domineo. And again, I feel like something like Opera Buffa, where it's much more character driven, much more um, getting to know the characters and sympathizing with them. We're getting closer to that idea of leitmotif, which is the idea of assigning specific themes to specific people. But I don't think still that Overture is quite to the point yet where it's going to be spelling out everything that you're going to hear throughout the throughout the piece. That's I think once we get to the romantic period, that's kind of like that's when that really takes hold. And specifically when we get to Wagner. Okay. He was kind of the guy that really invented that idea. A little foreshadowing there. Uh-huh. We'll definitely have a an episode on Wagner Opera when we get to it. Oh, man. Yeah, so big introduction. Four minutes and four seconds of instrumental five and one chords. Crescendos, de crescendos, accelerandos, all of it. It's just it's just pure fun for from start to finish. And it's it really if anything, it does um it does solidify the feeling of the opera. Right. You do get a, a great sense of all of the emotions that you're supposed to feel throughout this. That it's this grand, big, serious thing. Like, the overture to Edominate, it still is epic, like the Marriage of Figaro one, but it's it's very much more like commanding this presence, this this grandness, this this uh, nobility. Mm-hmm. Feels like the overture to the common man. Mm-hmm. That's true. And you can you can quickly make it almost comedic because yeah. of the weird dynamic jumps. Like the da 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 You know, it's like it's kinda of, it's it's almost making fun of itself in a weird way. Like I wouldn't say that, but you could quickly get to that point with it. Uh-huh. Which is right, which I guess is the point because it's a it's a funny it's a funny opera. Yeah. So, so yeah, so yeah. There's our overture. Take us to the first song, Lucas. Yeah. Plot so, uh, not even going to attempt to try to say what the names of these arias and pieces are, but this okay. is sung by Figaro. This is actually the song that closes out Act One. This is the finale of Act One. So, this is Figaro singing to Kirabino after Kirabino has been found out by the Count and has been commissioned to go to the military. 
This is the song where he is winning Kirabino over to his side. He's doing it by scaring the crap out of them. <laughs> so the there, there this is a bit of a, a chorus, a verse chorus um structure. It's technically a rondo form, which means that you have a main melody that you're constantly returning back to while you have explorative sections in between. But you've got that bum ba dum dun da dum dun da da dum dun da dum that's kinda like the main theme of this piece. Ah, so it's not like a pure verse chorus verse chorus. No, but it's each just time... keeping it it's keeping it from sounding like Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Yeah. And keep, keeping something there for the audience to hear. Yeah. And, and and recognize, I guess. So what he's saying during this main theme is no more, you amorous butterfly, will you go fluttering round by night and day, disturbing the peace of every maid, you little narcissus, you Adonis of love. Pretty much he's saying that once you're in the military, you're not going to get to do all the fun things that you do now. No more will you have those fine feathers, that light dashing cap, those curls, those airs and graces, those, that rosette womanish color. You'll be among warriors by Bacchus, long mustaches, knapsack tightly on, musket on your shoulder, saber at your side, head erect and bold of visage, a great helmet or a headdress, lots of honor, little money, and instead of the fandango, you'll be marching through the mud, over mountains, through valleys, in snow and days of listless heat, to the sound of blunderbusses, shells, and cannons, whose shots make your ears sing on every note. Wow. Pretty much he's, paint, he's painting a, a less than flattering, but he's also framing out just like, hey, it's, it's an honorable thing to do. <laughs> kind of that like trying, the... like making him feel bad about it but also like terrifying him about it so ah. he's pretty much in because he's not saying very specifically you should come work for me instead he's kind of just like getting him to a point of desperation to where he's just like can you help me please get out of this did uh didn't Europe just have a whole bunch of wars Oh, I'm sure. The, Europe was always in war during that point. Oh, I, I do. There was there was some period of time where it was just conflict after conflict, and I imagine that you wouldn't have lines like that in an opera seria. Yeah, and where someone have... is where someone is almost mocking war and service duty. Right, like this, like this. I guess would still be considered quote unquote controversial. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, yes. So we have, we have a lot of those songs now, though. I mean, you know, born in the USA, right? Uh huh. Now, what's really cool about this song is that, and you would know this if you have seen Amadeus. There is a, I would say, probably the best scene in the movie is when um, Mozart and Salieri meet each other for the first time. Uh, Salieri, if you remember from our last episode, is is a real-life composer that had no beef with Mozart in real life, but they created the drama because there was this – apparently there was this legend that persisted after Mozart's death that Salieri had poisoned him. Mm. And one of the things that 
drove Salieri insane is that he was like, I don't understand where this rumor came from. Why would I kill the greatest musical mind of all time? I adored his music, and it pains me to my soul that someone would spread the rumor that I killed him. Mm-hmm. But as time has gone on, um, uh, he has become this figure of spite and hate and jealousy towards Mozart because he uh, could never be the composer that he was. So the scene in the movie is that um, Salieri play writes a march of welcome for Mozart. And the emperor, who is Salieri's music student, um, plays it for Mozart as he walks in. And, um, of course, Mozart just, like, completely insults Salieri about his piece. And it's just like, oh, that was a funny little number. It could do with some improvements. And at the end of the scene, they try and give him the sheet music, and Mozart says, no, it's okay, I've already got it here in my head. And they were like, okay, prove it. And so he instantly hops on the piano and plays it perfectly. And it gets to the point in the middle, the little turnaround, um, it's instead of it's like this and he's just like that part doesn't really work How, what if I changed it to this and he comes up with the, the actual turnaround and Salieri the whole point is just like oh my god I hate this man not only is he musically brilliant but he's destroying the piece that I wrote for him <laughs> in front of the emperor well. but it's so that scene is so iconic and so brilliantly written but I did not know that that had um, that they took that piece from Marriage of Figaro so when I was listening to the opera that aria started and I was just like oh my gosh it's the Salieri's March theme the Salieri's March mm-hmm and I guess that never really happened. No, that did not really happen. And it never really would have happened. No, but it's a it's a cool Easter egg that they took that melody and made it the the central part of that uh, of that scene. You you got even if you don't watch the movie, look up that scene. It's pretty incredible. Okay. Um, but of course, when I heard that in this, I was just like, well, I've got to include the song because it's it's got a great history with that movie and a cool little fun fact about this song is that this is what plays at Buckingham Palace at the changing of the guard oh the like the like the Buckingham standout watch whenever it's time for the guard to change they play this song and that tradition started one year after Figaro debuted, so in seventeen eighty seven oh my goodness that's so. a lot of that's a lot of times that they've played that yep <laughs> making I mean, it probably Mozart's most played piece <laughs> probably could be the most played piece in well, I don't know about that. Nah, not in the age of streaming. 
Okay, well, maybe but Mozart. as far as Mozart, I would say that that's a, probably a good piece, or a, a good chance that that piece in his most played. On top of the fact that it was just a popular, it was kind of one of those like, if songs could be popular back in the day, this was like a, this was one of Mozart's popular songs. It it have been the uh, leading single. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But can you also yeah. notice a difference now in how simple and how direct the music is compared to what we've heard before? Man, let me tell you, there's not like a bajillion mathematically calculated, you know, pi r squared plus h times the quantity of whatever kind of music that we heard in Baroque. You know, mm -hmm. we had to do your homework to write 15 seconds of music. This is just like... It, I don't know. It's, it's 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 like I don't want to say oh it's a couple of chords and like some notes, but like a couple of chords and some some melody. Mm -hmm. Some of the greatest music of all time is essentially that, you know, without all the complex, you know, almost prog level of stuff. It's it's a lot easier to listen to than some of our previous music history. Yeah, I mean that's those are le that chorus line is a legitimately great hook. Yeah, it's almost it's almost comically simple, but then that in again shows the genius of Mozart. Mm -hmm. Well, and the the other thing is like it's repeating that same rhythm. I mean, we talked about that I think in the first the first classical era episode. I was like, oh, this Mozart song or these Mozart songs. I can't remember if we had one or two. I was like thinking through the whole thing that he we had just had one rhythmic motifs like going through his songs where it's like oh the 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 notes might move down a little bit and sure enough in this hook that happens it's dun da da dun da da dun da da dun and then you move down down in the mode by one and it works it's like that's how that's how you write that's how you write a hook one on one easy hook but it's 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 easy it's almost like cheating it's, it's so easy but he also does it well yeah so if you cheat you still get a hundred on the tests you know that's true you'll get a good grade <laughs> he got he got a hundred on the test so i agree all right we can move on to the next one yes so we're in act two now yes so this song is sung, this is another aria, sung by Kirabino. This is while he is in the Countess's room before they start um, dressing him up as Susanna. He's talking to both Susanna and uh, the Countess. And um, pretty much the... Um, the ladies are like, oh, it's such a shame that you're going off to the military. Oh, you're, but you're, you're so talented. And the countess brings up, oh, I've, I've, I've heard that he's a great singer. And Susanna's like, oh, why don't you sing something for us? And so this is the song that he comes up with lyrics that definitely show the, the, the sexual turmoil within a 13 year old boy. <laughs> So the, the lyrics 
The translation is, you ladies who know what love is, see if it is what I have in my heart. All that I feel I will explain, since it is new to understand it. I have a feeling full of desire, which now is pleasure, now is torment. I freeze, then I feel my spirit all blaze, and the next moment turn again to ice. I seek for a treasure outside of myself. I know not who holds it, nor what it is. I sigh and I groan without wishing to. I flutter and tremble without knowing why. I find no peace by day or night, but yet to languish thus is sheer delight. You ladies who know what love is, see if it is what I have in my heart. So there you go. So that's definitely the uh, the poem of a of a boy who is experiencing hormones for the first time. And, and he didn't he didn't pull out. See, I feel like if this were a modern musical, he would have like sang like the main theme of the of the musical. But the fact that it's like its own standalone song that also contributes to the character, I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's a bit of an aside, a moment to kind of like take a breath from the action, the constant action that's happening. And this is considered one of the great arias of all time. Like I looked up a bunch of lists of what are the 10 greatest arias. This one like consistently makes top 10 lists. Wow. Nice. Nice. Well, I'm saying nice. Well, the other thing is it's it's written to let the voice shine. I mean, there's not a lot happening instrumentation-wise. There's some flutes and some woodwinds and some maybe some brass here and there. Of course, there's obviously going to be some strings. But it's like, I mean, the voice is just going pretty much the whole time. Mm-hmm. So it's like you, you got to have some breath control. <laughs> to do something like this. It's not like uh, hitting the super high notes or like jumping way here and the other and rapping super fast kind of thing. But it's like, it's like the end of Stargazer where it's like you just, it's not necessarily hard stuff, but you put it all back to back to back to back. And you uh, you have to be the center of attention while you're doing that. Like you have to be really yeah. on your game. It is a great vocal showcase, but again, in a way that is so tuneful and so easy to understand and comprehend. Yeah. Like, this is not a song of someone flying up and down the scales. Yeah. This is also the kind of song that a truly mature songwriter writes. This is not, even though Mozart in his 20s was a brilliant composer. The one criticism you can level at him is that he tries too much to show how great he is overtly by having these really complex passages. Mm -hmm. You can tell that this is a late stage Mozart. Now I would say that that that's one of the things that marriage of Figaro really signals is the full maturity, at least of what we got of Mozart. Obviously he would have continued to mature had he lived longer, but these, this is a piece written by someone that is no longer has anything to prove. And now it's just like, I could just make great music and 
not even have to really try. Not even have to try. I don't. Well, have, yeah. I don't have to prove myself. Six Every, weeks. You didn't have to try that hard. I. I. I yeah, because and that's the other thing with a lot of his earlier operas that draws some criticism is that there's, as they very uh, comically mentioned the Amadeus, there's just too many notes. And an aria like this shows that he's not making that mistake anymore. That everything breathes, everything has space, everything allows for the notes and the words. That was another thing that was very um, progressive about this opera was that you could really understand everything very clearly because, again, there's not this this overproduction of 50 million words flying to you because the uh, composer is trying to show off how great of a composer he is. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of the feeling that you get sometimes in the, in the Baroque and in a whole lot of modern music too. I mean, tech death, right? <laughs> tech death. It's- it's it's just well it's I am I am one for crazy instrumental passages, believe me, right? Oh, I don't doubt that. Images and words is full of crazy instrumental passages that are just like what is happening. And when you do it well, you get something like images and words, right? And and you get something like the Baroque that we talked about. And then when you just do it for the sake of trying to show off and not worrying about the notes you're playing, you know, playing notes that are super, super fast and having some cool feel to it, you get some great stuff out of that. But playing notes super, super fast for the purpose of playing notes super, super fast, no one's going to want to learn to play that music because no one's going to no one's going to get inspired by that. No one's going to listen to that and go like, oh, my gosh, that was such a good little lick right there a good little series of notes they're just gonna think wow 1000 notes per second you know and and go off and do whatever they were doing before so yeah i guess it is it is a sign of maturity and you can see that with with a lot of i would say even like metal bands do that sometimes where i don't think some of them slowed down because that was what was in i think some of them slowed down because they just became more mature and realized that they wanted to deal with with slower more maybe not more emotional songs i don't want to say more emotional because my example was going to be great southern trend kill (laughs) but anyway that's that's a that's another episode so i i keep getting sidetracked that's okay i I haven't gotten that sidetracked in a long time you have to you have to have uh things to modern things that you understand to compare this to right right otherwise it's it is just a sea of confusion mm-hmm. like our uh whatever his name is in this song carabino carabino Car- carabiner which which is which is actually spelled cherubino like he's a little cherub oh okay that's kind of funny yeah <laughs> he's a funny character yeah yeah but it's, that's a nice little tidbit let's go ahead and move on to the next song this is still an act two this is the big or part of the big act two finale um 
This is the massive character scene. The one where I talked about how they're all arguing amongst each other about the bedroom and was it actually Carabino in there? Was it Figaro? Um, by the end of this scene, like pretty much every character except Carabino is in the room. Yeah, you can hear all of the voices that come in and kind of yell at each other almost sometimes. Now this is this is truly brilliant songwriting here because this was something that had never been attempted before in opera where you have this many characters constantly going back and forth at each other and have it all make sense. This is it's it's a moment like this that clues historians in that Mozart was was in on the libretto writing process. Because he would have been the one that would have pushed for, we need a scene where there's tons of people interacting with each other at the same time. Ooh, yeah, so he could kind of flex his muscles uh-huh. in a new way. Yeah. Now, there's another, and I'm, I know I'm talking about Amadeus a lot, but it's, it's very, um, it's very applic applicable, and it, it makes sense. Um, there's a scene where he's trying to convince Emperor uh, Joseph to allow him to do this opera because, again, the thing that they bring up is this: this Figaro, this is this is way too controversial. And so he's saying, for instance, there's this scene in the second act where it starts off with just a husband and wife, and they're quarreling with each other, and then um, the the wife's conniving little mistress comes in duet becomes a trio then his valet comes in and enters the scene becomes a quartet and then the gardener comes in quintet and he keeps labeling like all these people coming in septet octet and he says how do you how long do you think i can sustain this type of interaction and the emperor's like i don't know like mozart says 20 I can. I will have twenty minutes of uninterrupted music, no recitatives, and that's the thing that convinces the emperor in the movie to go. Okay, I'll let you do the opera. Now, of course, that right. interaction again did not happen in real life. Although the the fact that it was controversial is historically true. I don't know what specifically Mozart said to convince them to let him do this opera. But um, he's illustrating what many consider to be the most brilliant moment of the opera, which is this giant octet um, interaction. Now, now in the in the opera, like on the on the album, I would have had to string together four or five different songs to equal this 20-minute block. So we're not hearing the whole thing. We're, we're hearing the part where the gardener comes in and says, um, every day I see all kinds of things thrown from the balcony overlooking the garden. But just now, oh, it couldn't be worse. I saw a man, my lord, thrown down. Um, I won't read everything because there's a lot of characters interacting with each other a lot of characters speaking only to the audience speaking to each other where the other ones can't hear mm -hmm. um 
but pretty much the whole argument that Figaro comes up with is that, and this is true, is that the gardener Antonio is a drunkard. He's drunk from morning to night and saying that he's seeing things because he's intoxicated. Okay. It's an argument. So, and Susanna is whispering to Figaro saying, you know that it was Kirbino that jumped from the window and Figaro's whispering to Susanna, I know I saw him. And then, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, just laughing loudly. And Antonio saying, what's there to laugh at? Figaro says, you're drunk from morning till night. Says, now tell me again, a man fell from the balcony. Yes. From the balcony into the garden, into the garden. Uh, Figaro, that's, that's what the laughing is. Yeah, Figaro says, you whining old fool, do be quiet, making such a fuss over nothing. Since the fact can't be concealed, it was I who jumped down from there. What? It was you? And Susanna and the Countess aside say, oh, what a brilliant move. Figaro says, why are you so surprised? The Countess says, I just can't believe it. Antonio says, how have you grown so tall then? After the jump, you weren't so big. Figaro says, jumping does that to one. And and that seems to do the trick. And Tony's just like, huh, who would have thought it? <laughs> it's just, doesn't even question it. And Antonio says, huh, I could have sworn that it looked like a boy. And that's when the count goes, Kirabino. And Figaro says, um, of course, it could not have been for he. Or else he's already on horseback to Seville. And Antonio's just like, well, no, that's. That can't be Kirabino. I didn't see any horse jump down. <laughs> that is uh it's a little bit of a logical mismatch there. Yeah. The count says, <laughs> so it was you who jumped down. Why? Figaro says, I was afraid. Afraid of what? Figaro says, I was shut up in the closet waiting for that dear little face talking about Susanna there's an unusual coming and going and noise you were shouting there was that letter I lost my nerve and jumped down in terror and I wrenched a muscle in my foot and that's when Antonio says then these are your letters which you dropped and when Figaro realizes he looks to Susanna and the countess says ah oh, I'm caught in a trap and yeah. that's when it gets to the to the what's what's this letter what is it Antonio mm -hmm. says I expect it's a list of his debts Figaro says no actually of tavern keepers what wait uh, that must it... be a joke that maybe is is lost on our modern context okay yeah I was about to say isn't it isn't it the uh, conscription papers yeah and it's and the the Susanna is the one that has to whisper to F Figaro. Actually, that's his commissions. And Figaro, it says if he's recollecting recollecting something. Oh, of course, it's the commission. The boy gave it to me a while ago. For what? It lacked the seal because in on one of the things they noticed was that. Kirabino's commission was actually null and void because the count forgot to put his seal on it. Oh, 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 oh. got him. 
that's pretty good. And the the way the scene ends is he says aside to the audience, "In vain you fume and stamp, sir. You'll get nothing out of me." And then that's when it goes to the next part, when it turns from a quintet into an octet with the Marcellina and Bartolo. And Basilio, which was a character I didn't really talk about, but he's also a villainous character that's helping the Count. Wow. Lots of... Lots and of I didn't I didn't even read you half of the dialogue there, because it's a lot of back, forth, back, and forth, back, and forth between all different characters, and it would be it would be pointless for me, and it would take me forever to read every single line from that scene. But... It's again, it's truly remarkable how much Mozart is balancing so much dialogue, so many characters, and yet everything flows together so effortlessly. Right. Right. In this yeah, I, in this really mad scene. Yeah, it's gosh. I can't even imagine. I mean, you probably at some point just have to have to pick something and go with it like how do you plan something like that i don't know how do you plan that out what a wow that i feel like this scene in of itself would have taken six weeks gosh this probably scene in of itself would have been a year yeah like this is <laughs> this this was by far the most complicated thing ever accomplished in an opera nice well it's good to hold that title. Yeah. Man. I mean this was this was this was Mozart's flexing moment in in The Marriage of Figaro. And it it really was it really was a compositional flex. Mm-hmm. Not a not a talent. Like, and again, the, the fact kind. the fact that when um when this starts with just the count and the countess, from that point on there are no recitatives until the end of the because remember, recitative was always what was relied on to move the story forward. And the arias were less about the story and more about revealing a character's inner um, dialogue. But here, we have stuff that's not only moving the plot forward, but is also musically rich. Because recitatives typically are not musically rich. They're more of let's let's buy some time, let's let's get the story moving, let's let's change keys so that way we can be musically in the right space for the next song. Mm-hmm. It's they were sung, but they're kind of more like talk sung, kind of like like I would imagine on a score that a recitative is not highly notated. Probably a lot of them are improvised. Mm. With because there's just there's kind of like there will be sparse little chords here and there behind them to kind of give them an idea of where they should be tonally, but yeah. it's much more important about just getting the words out and getting the keys changed to the next song. But there's none of that in the last twenty minutes of this second act. It's all uninterrupted music. Mind blown. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Man, let me tell you. What a way 
to end the first half of your show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Let's continue our movement through this set. Yes. So we're in Act 3 now. So we are in the third act. So this is a duet between Susanna and Countess. Okay. And what they're doing is that they are uh, writing a letter together that's going to be the official proposition of their new plan to catch the count. And it's really cool the way that this is structured. Because what it is, is um, the Countess is telling Susanna what to write. And so whatever the Countess sings, Susanna replies. But she's the one that's actually writing it down. Mm. Oh, yeah. That, that's smart. So it's going to well, be Susanna's handwriting. Because they need to convince the Count that it's Susanna that's propositioning him. Mm-hmm. But it's the Countess's words, which is, again, good foreshadowing of how the whole conflict is going to end. It's mm-hmm. really the Countess that um, that the Count is, is being um, enticed by. But he thinks it's Susanna. That's actually kind of funny. Yeah. It's so, kind of funny. yeah. So the the lyric, the lyrics are, and I'll just I'll just read the countess's side of it. Mm-hmm. A song to the zephyr, how sweet the breeze will be this evening, in the pine grove. And then, um, it says she says the rest he'll understand, and Susanna says I'm sure he'll understand. And after that, it just some pretty great acrobatics of of weaving these ideas back and forth. Ooh, so we got some cool lyrics as well. But again, it's it's all those are the only lyrics in it, but they 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 change them around and 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 switch them around to where it becomes this really great dance between the two characters. Nice. So lyrically, it's pretty light, but conceptually, it's it's a really genius work. Wow! Yeah, this is, this is another. We just came off of a interesting compositional song. Here we got another one. It's just weird idea after weird idea that seems like it just works. Yeah, and again, he's Mozart is using such such strong. Um, such strong musical ideas that um, it just it works so well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, I that's the type of scene I would want to see. I should I shouldn't have said that because now I'm gonna end up watching this thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. I've fallen down the rabbit hole. I think mm-hmm. it's just the the way that you're describing these scenes. It's like I understand what's happening musically. You know, I can picture what's happening in my head, 
But until I really see it, I don't think I'm really going to understand it. Yeah. But man, when am I going to have time to sit down and watch an opera, you know? I guess I'll have to Oh, you find time to watch at least a few scenes. Make make time. It's worth it. Uh, okay. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see by next episode if I have or have not. Okay. Well, I, I guess we'll we'll see by final thoughts if by next episode I will have or have not. Yeah. <laughs> at least go watch Amadeus. Man, that's a that's a lot of time. Dude, it's worth it. Okay. Take away a little bit of video game time and and uh, watch something that we've been talking about be brought to life on the screen. Man, let me tell you, video video game time is close to nil when you're in your junior year of physics degree. Uh, <laughs> all you kids these days with your fangled video games. What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> oh boy, yeah. But it, all that to say is, it sounds like at least the way you're describing it, it's making me want to go like see it. Yeah, you really I, need to see it. I guess that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the the podcast is to entice people to go and dig a little bit further for themselves. You know, discover what good music is to you. What, whatever that context would be. In this case, it would be, you know, the marriage of Figaro. So, anyway, with that, let's let's conclude this segment. I say. Yes. So, here we have the final scene, which is when the count uh, is revealed to be. Um, uh, caught everyone is there in the garden and this is where we get our big final moment this is when the countess emerges from uh, uh, from her hiding spot because the count still believes that he was with Susanna but because of the fact that Susanna was dressed as the countess and having a bit of a a special moment with Figaro, this makes the Count insanely jealous, thinking that now his wife is cheating on him, which he he has a lot of these jealous moments throughout, which shows him as being a big old hypocrite, that yeah. he's willing to be unfaithful, but he gets mad at the thought of his wife being unfaithful to him. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, she comes out and both Basilio and Antonio say, oh, heavens, what do I see? Is this a delusion, a vision? I can't believe it. And this is when the Count realizes what's happening. He says, my Countess, forgive me. She says, I am kinder. I will say yes. And then it ends with a great chorus of saying, let us all be happy. This day of torment, of caprices and folly, love can end only in contentment and joy. Lovers and friends, let's round things off in dancing and pleasure, and to the sound of the gay march, let's hasten to the revelry. Wow. Okay. Okay. So it's it's the it's the moment where everything comes together, and trust me, in a it's not as 
cobbled together as it may seem, just because, again, I'm having to skip over a lot of plot because a lot of stuff happens. Yeah. But there's a very intricate garden scene where multiple people are mistaken the identity of others. And there's this constant back and forth, people mistakenly thinking that the other one has betrayed them and so on and so forth. Like originally when Figaro comes in the garden, he thinks that Susanna is actually there with the Count because he wasn't privy to her and the Countess's new plan. And mm-hmm. gets jealous and just goes, Susanna actually betrayed me. She actually went with the Count. And then sees the Countess and goes, well, I'll get back at him and get with the Countess, but then realizes that the Countess is Susanna, figures out everything that's going on, and goes, oh, I see what's happening. So it's it's a lot of that. Constant back and forth, back and forth. Okay. Okay. So they really go through a lot to get to this, this uh, happy conclusion. <laughs> happy. Somehow. Yeah. Somehow for the Count, it's happy. Uh-huh. He seems like the type of person who would never be happy. Yeah, he's at least happy for now. <laughs> but can that you is... see now how scandalous of a play this is? Yes. I get it. This is I get it, but not... at the same time it's like some sometimes the slightly more offensive types of humor can be the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Those you know, kind of, the comedies the comedies that change everything. The, <laughs> the the comedies that maybe you feel a little bit guilty to watch can sometimes or or the shows that, you know I don't want okay, maybe I don't want to say that, but but they kind of step outside of the boundaries. I don't know. I guess Squid Game is really big right now. I don't know yeah, I've been hearing watched. a lot about that. I don't know if you've ever watched it. I watched the first two episodes, and it was definitely like, I can't, I can't analogize it to something else. And I think that that's, or at least I was very, very close, but then I was wrong. And you can't, you, you can't really get away with doing something or get being very big without doing something that's new and almost a little bit offensive. Because if you do have that weird, bad press about it, then, you know, that's more people who are exposed to the, to the art form or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that bands like, um, like the shock rockers thrive off of that. Like that's their whole, that's their whole play. Alice Cooper, that's his whole business model, is how many different ways can I offend the most, you know, musically conservative audience, right? Um, And it works. And I think that that would be why Marriage of Figaro continued to be in the public, like, sphere, because it struck this like comedic chord with people. Like I had a pretty funny like moments and stories and whatever. And it had great music. But it also it was just a little bit like it was a little devious. It was like, ooh, we shouldn't be watching this because you know who's gonna bust us 
Yep. Kind of like in high school when you're vaping, and it's like I wasn't I wasn't one of those kids. Okay, but I can imagine when it's like, ooh, Jimmy has a vape. Let's go vape in his backyard. Ooh, Jimmy has a vape hot. could be a good album name. Jimmy has a vape sounds like a bad. 2003 punk rock song. Yeah. (laughs) Jimmy has a vape. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, that was that was a long drawn out way of saying it was interesting. (laughs) Good. Well, we're going to take another break here and when we come back we are going to give our final thoughts about the marriage of Figaro. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We are wrapping up talking about Mozart and his opera buffa masterpiece, The Marriage of Figaro. Make sure that you go check out these songs. They are all in our Spotify playlist. Well, you can find that. There's a link in the description of the episode where you can listen to not only these songs, but all the songs from our previous episodes as well. Make sure that you go and check them out. So, Grant, this is officially the end of our Mozart opera little mini-series, our duology. So, how do you feel about The Marriage of Figaro and about Mozart overall after this? So, I mean, Marriage of Figaro, I talked a little bit about this right before we took a break. I mean, like, the the kind of offensive, devious nature of it, I think, worked to its um, advantage. So I thought that was pretty cool. And, like, the music was great. It was memorable. There were memorable motifs. I thought that the, the scenes and the dialogue that you had described were pretty funny. Um, obviously, it is three hours. I mean, I don't know. I don't have a whole lot of free time between now and our next recording session but i'm i'm sure i can fit in uh watching a few scenes a few of the iconic scenes um so i'll be looking forward to that and then because i mean it's it's like it's situational comedy you gotta you gotta see it really um so maybe i'll maybe i'll do a little bit of that maybe i'll watch the whole thing who knows maybe i'll watch amadeus only time will tell right in a week, everybody will know. Um, but uh, Mozart as a whole, man, I, I mean, because starting thinking about where we were a month ago or two months ago, um, or where I was knowing pretty much nothing about Mozart. I didn't really know he was that big of an opera guy. I thought he was like a harpsichord guy, not piano. And it's it's weird to think that like his greatest work is an opera and i didn't even know he was into that kind of thing because all i knew was Ina Klein and Nocturne music you know um so definitely definitely the dip into the opera was a good choice because that is his that's where he excels i mean you're not gonna you're not gonna watch Yuzi and Bolt play basketball to understand them you know so that was good that was fun I can see how Marriage of Figaro is his crowning achievement, at least versus E. Domineo. Not to say E. Domineo is bad. E. Domineo is great. But man, Marriage of Figaro, good music. And that's what he's 
that's his thing is the good music. And this is the good music podcast. Yeah. Um, if we were to pick favorite songs, you got to go with the opening. It's just, it's just memorable. The overture it is what it is. It's either the overture or ooh, could, could be that could be that last scene of act two is pretty cool. And also there's some great chord chemistry in the last song, but man, and you know, if I just keep talking, I'm just going to talk myself out of my decision. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with the overture. Overture is my favorite one. All right. Yeah. We've, uh, we've come a long way with Mozart and we're probably not completely done with him yet. Um, if what, if what I'm thinking about doing for this the next music history episode is what I'm going to do, then we probably still have a little bit of Mozart to talk about. Um, but this is definitely closing the chapter on him as an opera writer. And I had always heard that you know Mozart was a great opera writer, great opera writer, great opera writer. But I didn't really ever know what his opera sounded like. I mean, I had known the... Um, the Queen of the Night aria, whatever it's called, from Magic Flute. I mean, that's kind of one of those ones that's transcended um, into pop culture. But as far as like what, why he was such a celebrated operator, I never really understood before. And I felt like I got a good basis on Idomeneo, but Marriage of Figaro is the one where I'm just like, oh my gosh, I get it. This is just, this is a whole other level of songwriting. And really one of those capstone moments where music really changed after this piece. This was one of those things to where it's like things weren't the same afterward. And it's just such a shame that he died so young because he would have written so many more crazy things. But uh, the marriage of figure, I think is going to end up being one of those ones that like is the reason why I really get into opera. Because this was other operas I've liked and I've really been able to appreciate, but this was the first time watching it that I was just like, man, I'm actively enjoying this. Not only is the story really compelling, but the music, like I can I can leave certain parts and be able to hum what was happening. They're just well written songs. So, bravo, Mr. Mozart, you've done well. And that concludes this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. We, uh, we hope that you enjoyed and that if you did enjoy, please hit that subscribe button, whatever platform you're listening. We have new episodes every Monday at midnight. Next week, we are going to be returning to an artist doing a volume two. This is one that... Um, Really excited to uh, change Grant's mind about something. Oh man! And I think I you've knew it. I think you've already seen it. Uh, yeah, I actually I started listening through that that set today, and let me tell you, it's going to be we're going to have some interesting discussions. Yes, we are. <laughs> um, oh, I don't even know what my play is going to be right now. But um, man. My, it will be a fun episode. You guys yeah, definitely want to listen. Absolutely. I'm going to hope to walk away with a changed mind. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Um, if you want to reach out to us, the best way to do that is on Instagram and Facebook. 
That's the way that you can let us know what you think of the podcast and what artists you would like for us to talk about in a future episode. We do listen to you guys, and we try once a month to pick an artist that you have suggested for us. So uh, social media, it's the best place to get in contact with us. And then make sure you listen to the songs. Link to the playlist is in the description of the episode, as well as a link to our Patreon page. We don't have our... Uh, bad music segment this week we typically don't with our music history episodes but make sure you check in next week we will have one ready there and that's it i'm lucas i'm brent keep on listening to good music